0: You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal Or measure them all by box office appeal But for once in your life Be real! Welcome on and all to a movie reviewing, reappraising, and genre-hopping podcast. It's Be Real on the Playlist Podcast Network. I'm Chance Solomon pfeiffer And I'm Noah Ballard. And we're here in the month of February to talk about the work of Casey Lemons. It is the director's 60th trip around the sun. Happy trip around the sun, Casey Lemons. Um, And hers is a career that um, has been, I think unheralded coming out of the 90s she's the director of eve's bayou and uh, caveman's valentine and talk to me and black nativity and harriet we're going to focus on three of those five main titles from casey lemons today and we are psyched to have uh, dr christina baker on the program who edited a book of interviews with casey lemons uh, last year so to give us some more context Casey Lemons, in coming out in 97 and making Yves Bayou, she's one of the very first black woman filmmakers to, to make a theatrically released movie in the U.S. Um, but I think, yeah, her work does almost tend toward the old school in that way of trying to be very involving and trying to be um, very epic. Um, and I, I hope she can make movies for for decades more and and kind of stay at that she's also i think a very like versatile dramatist like i see someone who is really trying to connect the allegorical and the political through when she's working at her best um like really well drawn characters so whether she's in um you know kind of a southern gothic magical realist mode in eve's bayou or um a kind of daring urban mystery in Caveman's Valentine or, um, you know, a biopic that in Talk to Me doesn't really even feel like a biopic for a lot of it. Um, She's really trying to get you to see, of course, what these characters represent. I think that she's always interested in that in making films primarily about black life, but uh, rarely while actually sacrificing the characters themselves from being interesting. Right.
1: You know, of course, the obvious thing, too, is that all three of these movies, especially, are interested in a kind of myth-making. You know, there's the myth-making around the idea of, like, what it means to be a father in the South. Uh, there's the myth-making around a truth-teller, like a speaker to power. Uh, and then, of course, like, one of our most famous American icons in Harriet Tubman.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Um...
0: Christina Baker has her own theory about what unifies the work of Casey Lemon. So to to learn a little bit more about the filmmaker before we dive in, let's uh, go to the conversation with Christina. And as always, we want to remind you that Be Real is part of the Playlist Podcast Network where you can find shows like The Fourth Wall and The Playlist Podcast. Subscribe and download wherever you might get your shows, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, etc. Now let's talk to Christina Baker. Our guest today is an associate professor of critical race and ethnic studies at the University of California, Merced. Last year, she edited a book of interviews with Casey Lemons in the Conversations with Filmmakers series. And she also wrote about Lemons in depth in her book, Contemporary Black Women Filmmakers and the Art of Resistance. Professor Christina Baker, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. And thank you very much for that very warm, very kind welcome. I'm so happy to be here talking about Casey Lemons. I love her work.
0: This is not to to put you on the spot, but just kind of to see what what pops into your mind. If if we just say Casey Lemon's film, is there any specific quality or touch or perspective that jumps into your head?
2: Definitely, and I've I've thought about this a lot. And um, I mean, there there is you know, as you hinted, you know, it it can be hard to really pinpoint something because there is a lot. Um, and she's had such a, a long and prolific kind of career, but. I really see her work um, from, you know, Eve's Bayou um, to the most recent film, Harriet, as being very uh, poetic. And so that's the kind of word, that's the word that comes to mind when I think about uh, Casey Lemon's films, poetic.
0: Poetic. I love that. Um, does that link into the, the language for you or the pacing or the way she structures theme? What, what part feels, what, what's poetic?
2: Yeah, I feel like when I've, so when I've read interviews from her and even, you know, I I was lucky enough to have a chance to interview her um, myself. And so I think that the way that she sees the world and I think the way that it sort of comes through in the films is that there's a lot of symbolism and a lot of metaphors. And so for me, you know, there's, it's, um, it's something that for me, i link it very much to, to poetry. And so there's a beauty to it. And there's a way of seeing the world that goes beyond the, the sort of practical, um, obvious you know, way of seeing it. And so that's how I sort of get you know, the, the poetic aspect from, from the films.
0: Of the five black women directors who you spotlight in your previous book, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, Christina, I think Eve's Bayou is the earliest film from any of them. The others, I think, being Dee Reese, Ava DuVernay, Gina Prince-Blythewood, and Tawny Hamilton. I think Eve's Bayou is the earliest. Um, I was trying to think of... um, Black American women who directed films before Casey Lemons, Julie Dash and Kathleen Collins. Um, so I wondered if you could speak to a, um, the landscape for a, a black woman directing a studio film in 1997.
2: Mm-hmm. yeah that was really the beginning um, that was the beginning of, of it you know you mentioned uh, Kathleen Collins who I think it's really wonderful that there's a lot more recognition now unfortunately you know after um, she's no longer here to really um, personally um, you know see the, the fruits of that labor but yeah I think that you know Kathleen Collins she made a film that I that I think is a wonderful um you know, it's a great and important film, but it wasn't released widely theatrically at the time. Um, so it was with Julie Dash's uh, Daughters of the Dust, the first African-American woman, um, as you mentioned, to have a theatrically released film. And, you know, and Julie Dash is someone who has, I mean, she's continued to work since then, but she also has talked about the fact that when she had, you know, that, um, you know, that idea to make a film, a feature film for Daughters of the Dust, she really faced so much, um, so much resistance from Hollywood executives, studio executives, as far as getting support. And so Julie Dash really went through a lot of different sources of support. It was very much, you know, an independent um, a film that she, she financed by through her own work. You know, she didn't find a big studio to support that. Um, film. And so so I think that that sort of experience of not necess- not really having much support during that 1990s period where there were a few other Black women who had films in theaters um, was very common. And so Casey Lemons in 1997 with Eve's Bayou talked about the fact that um, the success of the film was, was something that really surprised um, people. And this was something that that really nobody expected because this was a first of all a first time you know director and a black woman director and you know and the film that she made was I think very much you know her film and and her kind of vision for what the story would look like and and it was different than what um, big you know film studios supported and so the fact that it did so well. Um, surprised people, and so during that that time, it was really the beginning of of um, think Hollywood sort of getting <laughs> to sort of see that a film that was directed by a black woman um, would actually have support from audiences. Um, so yeah, the the nineteen nineties was really the start of that.
0: Casey Lemon says in in one of the interviews in the book that you edited that she came to view all of the art she created as a form of protest art. And the the subtitle for for your book uh, or for the, for the previous book was is looking at the contemporary black women filmmakers through quote the, the art of resistance. How do you see um, ideas of protest or just a stance of protest coming through in Eve's Bayou?
2: Yeah. So I think that's a good question because I think that when, you know, when most people hear the word protest, um, a single image or a single idea comes to mind that there's someone who's, you know, out there in the streets holding up a sign and that's the only way to, to sort of protest um, something or to, you know, ad, advocate for change. But, but you know, I think that that's what, you know, protesting is about pushing for sort of this social transformation or pushing for a change. And so Eve's Bayou is a film, and, and this is something that Casey Lemons has pointed to um, in interviews, but it's a film that has a predominantly... African-American um, black woman cast. And it was something that, um, and she also points out that the film did not have any, and I love this sort of line, it didn't have any sort of hot 20 year olds. <laughs> so it was sort of, yeah. And so it was a film that that didn't fit the sort of Hollywood conventions for, you know, for who should be this sort of star, star who should star in films um, or what woman, have looked like in films. Um, And so I think that in insisting that, you know, she was going to have a 10-year-old, you know, a 10-year-old girl, Black girl, be then sort of the storyteller, the center of Eve's Bayou. This was something that was very unique. And so she's giving this sort of um, agency or empowerment to this young Black girl, and I think that is, you know, that's, revolu- that's different, that's revolutionary. And so she's sort of placing the power in, in, um, in someone who largely um, would be sort of disenfranchised or, you know, or would not have a lot of power in society. And, um, and, you know, and she also talks about the fact that for Eve's Bayou, again, really a place, a space, where it was a Creole um, black community, and when she was asked, apparently by a lot of people, to have you know white characters somehow inserted into the story, um, or even she said at one point, you know people asked, well, what about a white racist character to add that element? And she really, you know, pushed back on that idea. And, and obviously Eve's Bayou is, you know, it's a self-contained um, Creole black community. And there's no additional story about, you know, racism um, and trying to envision, you know, what, how a sort of white character would look like and what that would mean for this story. It would really change Um, what the story of Eve's Bayou is. And so by insisting that there was this, you know, town, um, this town that was this self-sustaining sort of community and they, you know, they had their own, there were problems within the family, you know, the town had their own complications, you know, but, but still it was a town that existed and that had a lot of joy to it as well. Um, and it was not depicted as being dependent or somehow reactive to, um, you know, the white uh, community. And and so that, in a way, was a form of protest.
0: I guess one of the ideas I wanted to bounce off you was, I feel like a lot of times, white film institutions, um, or predominantly white film institutions, or historically white film institutions, have a way of um, taking a lot of Black films as like documentary, like thank, like sort of self-congratulatory, like, well, thank you. Thank you for showing our institution something real or something, quote unquote, important. And I I wonder if, if what feels might still feel really special about Eve's Bayou is that it's it's so clearly richly fictional. Mm
2: hmm. Yeah, that's, yeah, I mean, I think that's a really great point in that there's, I think, especially, you know, when we think about the films that did well, like um, in the around that era, 1990s, um, like Boys in the Hood, and, you know, um, there was Manage to Society, and, you know, and those films got a lot of attention because they were very much marketed with this idea that you know this is the sort of gritty reality um, of black urban communities and um, yeah and that was so that's one you know one perspective you know one type of one way to tell a, a story that has black characters and so that's i think also an interesting kind of story to tell but um but when only one kind of story is told as conveying the real, you know, quote unquote, real, um, realness of black life, then that very much distorts, um, of course, that reality is very complex. And, you know, and of course there's a lot of different experiences for, for all groups. And, um, and so, yeah, I think that Yves Bayou is both, you know, very, it's, it's a fictional story um, but it also, it was generated from some of the memories from Casey Lemons and, you know, and some of the things that, you know, that she sort of um, had in her mind, you know, that had kept, that had stayed with her from her childhood. And so, so she doesn't in any way say this is a, you know, an autobiographical story. She doesn't, you know, the film wasn't marketed as real life. Um, But there's there's some element of truth to sort of what she some of what she experienced in her life um, to that story.
0: Yeah, let's jump ahead to um, to talk to me and to Harriet, if you don't mind, Um, both of which, I guess, strictly speaking, are are biopics of a kind. Um, How do you see Casey Lemons um, making that form her own?
2: yeah, so well, definitely, you know, as we were just talking about the the fact that there's an emphasis on the relationship between the characters. So with talk to me, um you know, certainly it's it's about, you know the career of this um, you know radio host. and you know, and the you know, and there's this sort of backdrop of you know the period and the the movement that was going on. But you know what's really central to that story is the relationship between Dewey and Pete and Pete. And so, um so it's just this, yeah, I think that the um, that's something that really, I think draws people in. It drew me into that to that movie. and um and so I think guessing yeah, the development of that kind of relationship on the screen um, is something that that I think is something really great about the film. And it relates to, you know, I think the ability of Casey Lemons to really depict those relationships well in Eve's Bayou, and then also in, um, you know, you mentioned Harriet, and so the, so yeah, I think Casey Lemons depicts uh, Harriet Tubman as really being driven by the relationship to her family, you know, and to. To her, um, to her husband, and then there's the relationship between her and uh, Marie, and you know, and that that kind of connection there, and and so I think that you can see in the films, or I see in the films, that relationship is very important um, in the films of Casey Lemons, and and you know, and I think that that makes a lot of sense given some of the things that that she said about her career and how she's really found support and how she's been able to really kind of continue in her career. And, and she, you know, she gives a lot of credit to her own family and the fact that, you know, her husband um, she's, she's mentioned um, has been very supportive of her career. And, you know, and so they've worked together. So, so much, pretty much, you know, every movie. And now um, we also see that she's brought in, you know, her, her son who is, you know, creating his own career um, in Hollywood. And so, so I think that if we look at the films, but then also just, you know, some of what, some of what um, we can see about her life, that, that I think that the relationships are, are something that are very valuable for her.
0: Looking ahead here, I know she's been working for a while on the uh, Madam CJ Walker miniseries and, um, and I was reading she she adapted um, Charles Blow's novel into like an opera libretto for Terrence Blanchard, which is wild. Um, but I'm just curious of all the things that she's she's done these you know, novelistic magical realism and and, and biopics and musicals. Um, as a observer and a fan yourself, is there is there something you would like to see her apply her talents to?
2: Oh wow! Um, I mean, I'm definitely a fan, and I, you know, and she has a, a history in her career of of certainly centering and um, telling stories about Black women, and I can I can certainly see her continuing to do that, and I think that you know that that's um, a wonderful thing, and I think certainly there's a lot more room um, for more stories that are. That are centering black womanhood in ways that are unique and interesting and complex and beautiful and messy you know and all there's a lot of possibilities certainly that are still out there and and i think i um i'm i think i'm a little bit of a sentimental person and so i was you know i was um we we're talking about the importance of relationships um earlier and so I think, you know, I love seeing stories that center on some sort of connection, you know, romantic connection or a friendship sort of connection. And um, and so I would, you know, I'd love to see more of those stories.
0: Well, Christina, thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time. It was a pleasure to talk to you.
2: I enjoyed talking to you, thank you.
0: Thanks so much to Christina for sharing her, her voice and perspective and her, her vast research on Casey Lemons with, with the show. That was, it was great to have her on. Um, Noah, you want to dive into our review slash reappraisal of Eve's Bayou circa 1997?
1: Yes, I would love that. I'll start with reading the synopsis. As you always do. What did little Eve see? And how will it haunt her? Husband father and womanizer, Luis Baptiste, is the head of an affluent family, but it's the women who rule this gothic world of secrets, lies, and mystic forces. Wow. This is a pretty good, it's a very selling IMDb synopsis here. Uh, They usually don't do the rhetorical questions. That's what draws me in. Memory is a selection of images. Some elusive others printed indelibly on the brain
0: that he loves you so much
2: i know. we'll dance at everybody each image is like a thread each thread woven together to make a tapestry of intricate texture
0: when i first met lewis i said to myself he's a healer he'll take care of me do you still love her
2: Men fought
0: each other for the privilege of speaking her name.
1: And the tapestry tells a story. And I find out he's just a man. You're in trouble. They're really mad. Who, them? <laughs> they always mad. And the story is our past. I'll never forgive you if you drive him
2: away. I'm not your damn and The summer I killed my father, I was ten years old.
0: I saw Daddy. What? Daddy and Mrs. Moreau. Don't get What's wrong with her? She'll be all right. I suppose actually a little more context that we need to give is that through the 80s and 90s, Casey Lemons is an actor. She is in School Days. She's in Candyman. Um, She is most famously helps, her character helps Clarice Starling arrive at the aha moment that uh, um, Buffalo Bill covets what he sees every day, um, which kind of cracks that movie open. Casey Lemons, by the way, has that great, um, when she finds out that Hannibal Lecter has uh, escaped in another man's face. She's got that great run down the Quantico hallway where she is freaking out as well she should be. Um, Well,
1: Hannibal's on the loose. What would you do?
0: I would run like hell after letting that payphone dangle. Um, I don't want to besmirch the acting career because Casey Lemons doesn't, but the one thing that she does acknowledge that I think is kind of indisputable is that these are not great parts. Candyman is the one for me too where I'm like, this is a like a, a black horror movie like set uh, in a slice of black life and she's still just playing the best friend really virginia madsen is the one who's gonna get to have the final showdown with Candyman. Right. are we sure about this so you have someone who i think has been relegated to pretty like stereotypical supporting parts for the better part of 10 or 15 years while she's also been writing in the studio system for movies and TV and Yves Bayou comes about in 97 as Casey Lemons tells it as a, something that is totally from her mind and imagination, a classic kind of lonely desk drawer script where she had no real regard for quote unquote rules of script writing. Um, You know, there's, it's not necessarily, there's, there are elements of the movie that come from things she imagined in childhood, but she's not from Louisiana. Um, She never lived in Louisiana, to my knowledge. Um, It's just a pretty richly imagined movie and a classic example of like, I think of her making the movie that she would want to see that doesn't yet exist.
1: Absolutely, yeah. But it doesn't, and that's so interesting because it like, yes, it does break a lot of narrative rules, but at the same time, like this movie feels very of 1997. Like it feels like that kind of, and we were texting about this yesterday, like it has that Southern women, like actually pulling the strings of their families, like despite their either totally idiotic or like potentially uh, predatory masculine figures in their lives. and And even it's got that sort of, you know, Sandlot or My Girl or kind of thing of like, remember that thing that happened to us that was traumatic when we were kids kind of feel to it uh, that brings us in. And it's got that too, like the, this is also right around the time of like Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil where like, you know, they were casting big people to be like sort of these Southern gentlemen. So it's like, I love that the the entry point here is, is, is the titular bayou to just kind of set the stage for, like, what does this place feel like? Because it seems like the South definitely has a renaissance, at least in, like, the popular imagination in terms of films of this time. So this movie opens at a party, which I think
0: is a fantastic way to open really maybe any movie, but especially, like, your epic family drama. Um, because oh, yeah. in, in the course of like ten minutes, you get to see how every character from uh, mother and father, Roz and Lewis, to the the three kids, Eve, who's Journey Smollett, who's our who's our lead, uh, little Poe, and then Cecily, played by Megan Good, you get to see how they all present or want to present um in the community at their happiest, and then as the night wears on and the liquor runs quicker you
1: see oh my
0: you see what's you know you see the facades fall off um it's such a great characterization tool
1: yes it's a cool narrative way into it uh too because then that's the sort of raucousness of this party you know leads to you know this this drunken mistake the inciting trauma for this film which is samuel jackson hooking up um, with Maddie Moreau. But of course, the titular Eve, played by Journey Smollett, s- witnesses this thing. And what occurs is a step-by-step examination of the system and the fear that exists to, you know, kind of spackle over uh, sexually adjacent traumas.
0: right. Right.
1: Um,
0: and the uncertainty.
1: Um, yeah. So much so that like various times in the movie, there are different versions of that event playing out. The her catching her father uh, and his lover um, who, yeah, his, that's not the, the, what she sees is him cheating on, on their mom. Um, and the mom of course played by the brilliant Lynn Woodfield. Um, but yeah. So there's this the scene where Megan Good's like, that's not how it happened. Like dad was telling a joke and, and he slipped and, and you know, and that, and then seeing that play out too is like, it's kind of harrowing. Like this movie takes it that first turn away from like, oh, these are people just hanging out, having a good time at this party to darker movie about child who sees something they shouldn't movie.
0: Yeah. You know, a lot of, you know, going back to like to kill a mockingbird, um, which also yes. is in this milieu, um, the child is observer and the child is the POV character um, is interesting. And I think it's also, you know, a pretty classic thing. And, and, and Little Journey Smollett, who I think is maybe what, 10 or 11 when this movie is made? Yeah,
1: somewhere in there. Um
0: she is a uh, captivating and earnest and watchful, everything you'd want, I think, from a child performer at this age., right. um, But what I like is that the movie actually takes a step beyond just being in the witness stance to it becomes a movie about how, when you are that age in your family system, like a lot of the feelings that you carry are not even your own. Like they're not even really your like authentic. Self-generating feelings It's just like It's your first blush With like How to have Like Social Allegiances In a world And how to like Step into different roles Of Of um, You know Defendant and prosecutor Um, Yes And I think this movie Is brilliant at that Weirdly I think The note that the movie Ends on Which is just Such haunting Ambiguity I don't know if we We won't spoil the end For a little while here Um, But it's almost like That's the first moment in Eve's life where it's like, now, now you'll decide what to do and who you are. Because everything up to this point has, frighteningly enough, like, not really even been your decision.
1: Yeah. I mean, definitely. And that's just, like, part of the... You know, the trauma of being a kid is yeah. just how much influence you have to deal with in order to survive. You know, and where this movie is, I think it's most exciting is seeing these kids like call bullshit on their parents. Right. You know, uh, Journey and Megan Good uh, sort of go back and forth being like, you guys are insane. And the things you want us to believe are not believable. And we don't accept this. But then it just being like, I don't know, like, this is the way we do things around here mentality just kind of oppresses them all. Mm, mm -hmm. Like, even in the face of that, of those, like, childhood, like, don't you see that our dad's a creep? Right. Yeah. Let's, can we talk about Samuel L. Jackson? Of course. I think this movie, I don't know. And this is just my personal feeling about the matter. Samuel L. will have to forgive me. But I don't know if I think of him as, like, the level of handsome that this role kind of requires. Like, he's a tremendous actor. Don't get me wrong. Uh, But I don't know that I've ever thought of him that way as someone who's, like, the doctor going around and, like, is so handsome and, you know, can sort of woo anyone. And people are turning there. Women can't even cross the room without staring at him for a few minutes. Do you find him more maybe maybe you find him more attractive than I do. I, I, I would be fine with that.
0: I don't actually think it has anything to do with um, you know, a sort of objective attractiveness meter. I think that this is a character who has so fully internalized and weaponized his professional life and his charm. One of the best moments in the movie mm. is coming out of the carriage house where Eve has seen him cheating on her mother and he's like she's like daddy do you love mom slash what were you doing in there and you remember what he does he checks her he mimes checking her pupils it's like the good doctor you know through every stage of his denial
1: oh he like goes through the physical act yeah
0: he's doing like doctor stuff which is as the movie points out is really um important in this community in the 60s To have
1: a black man be in that role. I guess he's good because he's a very unsettling performance the whole way through. Oh, yeah. Because like there's so many shots of him just like being a normal guy and like hanging up his coat after getting home. Like nothing is the matter. Right. And then I don't think I've ever seen, you know, the like a creepier Samuel L. Maybe that's what I'm feeling. Maybe I'm feeling betrayed. Because of his behavior towards his own daughter, daughters, I guess plural, but like especially when this movie's like we're going there, I think that's brilliantly set up at the party too. Because uh, again,
0: we we won't spoil it for a sec here, but the 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 specter of incestual behavior is hanging over this movie from the very first minute. You see Lewis at the party in the beginning, do that like yes. very kind of sexual performative zydeco dance with uh with Moreau and then right after that he does like a a less bumpy a far less bumpy and grindy leave room for Jesus performative dance with his eldest daughter and you're like okay the the line here between these two kinds of dances was very thin how's this guy lacking an impulse control going to keep right. that line between the two dances
1: yes and this is all I mean, we're talking about sort of the main plot of this movie. And the other interesting part about this movie we haven't even discussed yet is the fact that it has this whole other part of it with Debbie Morgan as Mazelle, right. who is a clairvoyant. Um and she's the is she the sister? She's of Lewis's, Samuel L. Jackson? Lewis's sister, yeah. Lewis's sister. And so she sort of as the mom is losing it. As the aunt, she kind of takes the titular Eve under her wing, because uh, it seems like maybe Eve has a little bit of it
0: too.-hmm: And one of the things that I like about this movie is it it leaves a lot of question as to the efficacy of whatever it is. I mean it is, oh, yeah. it's a it's, a, it's a, a a lot a lot a lot of magical realism is suggested. But if you don't, if you want to read the movie as just being about um, hubris and the unwieldy nature of childhood, you can. If you don't, I mean, if you don't want to think that they're actually psychics, you don't have to. Um, But it's really interesting that almost no one in the, for a movie that has this much um, kind of like, you know, do you believe in, in clairvoyance, even... Even Diane Carroll, who plays Elzora, who is uh, basically just like a voodoo priestess who lives on the swamp, even she has moments of like very clear, like in town class based pettiness toward the Batiste family. She never expresses right. like a real. I believe in this.
1: That's interesting. Well, there is like that capitalist component of what she's doing. She like sets up at the the local market. Uh, yeah any yeah but i think it's interesting that you know when this movie kind of shifts into that witches of eastwick kind of space that it opens up a far more bizarre and more i think interesting like i love the idea of the you know sort of like the the curse that's on her that like all of her husbands are going to die because of like this really kind of disturbing uh moment between you know these two men fighting over her affection and then her feeling ownership of that uh yeah the only part to your point about maybe wishing that the B plot was more
0: developed the only part of the movie that like really is a head scratcher to me is what vondie curtis hall as julian is doing in this movie because he's supposed to be uh the ants sort of like refutation of like it doesn't matter if it doesn't matter if i'm o for three i've lost i feel i think the line is i've lost so much i'm at a place where i'm actually looking for more things to lose and she kind of believes in this like handsome stranger who comes to town and casey lemon's really cast vondi in like the i love how attractive you are my attractive husband you get to be (laughs) just this hot character um but there's yeah there's a scene where julian And then um, their uncle, who has a sort of rather severe disability, are just kind of like sitting on the porch watching people. And I'm like, hey, there's the two characters in the movie that the movie doesn't have any idea what to do with, sitting together on the porch. (laughs) Let's tell people how we rate movies on Be Real and then give Eve's Bayou a rating. On Be Real, we rate movies in two categories, good or bad for technical quality, and a good or bad for watchability. So what are the four possible ratings? I don't care!
1: Good, good movies are both well-made and highly entertaining. The Fugitive, Parasite, Rear Window, or The Hunt for Red October.
2: One more, small. We play our dangerous game.
0: Good, bad movies are often impressive technically, but also tough sits. Historical melodramas like The Mission, horror movies too scary or gross to rewatch, or self-serious musicals like Yentl. Papa,
1: can you hear me? Conversely, bad good movies are highly flawed but still gratifying. Nonsensical hangouts like Hot Tub Time Machine or ludicrously fun action fare like Twister or Stargate. In my regards to <clears throat> King Todd, asshole. Bad bad
0: movies are neither well-made nor entertaining. Examples we've covered unfortunately include Garden State, Fifty Shades of Grey, and Attack of the Clones. I'm deeply sorry, master. Got all that? Time for a rating. I am... Definitely not alone or especially original in, like, you know, watching this movie for the first time 23 years after it's come out. It's it's definitely, like, developed, you know, it made $14 million back in the day, but um, it's specifically the kind of movie that, as as more and more rightful attention is paid to um, black filmmakers whose careers were largely overlooked, like, this is the kind of movie that people really kind of hold up on a year-by-year basis of, like, we do not talk enough about use Bio. I would... Completely agree with this. I think um, the way... It's kind of like I talked about with Silence of the Lambs. I really love the way that is not overly concerned with genre convention and wants to go wherever and with whomever it finds the most interesting. One of the things we haven't talked about is that there are some really funny moments of um, kind of twisted, dark comedy. Like what Journey Smollett's funniest line of the movie is like, these kids are all like Shakespeare devotees and they're trapped in the house because... Um, uh, Elzora has told Raz, the mom, that like one of the, somebody's gonna get hit by a car, and mom's like, "All right, well then the kids are inside all summer," and Journey's <laughs> like, "Listen." We're through all the tragedies, and we're almost on to the goddamn comedies, which is a perfectly placed line, because this is like the moment in the movie where it becomes a super dark comedy, when they weirdly end up celebrating the death of some other child in town who's been right. hit by this car, so now they can go outside, which is another kind of thing about like the cruelty of children who don't, don't know what they're doing yet. Um, I think this is a really good movie. I'm going to give it a
1: good good yeah I agree with you. i There's something really amazing uh about the the different genres this movie is able to play in. you know, like it does have dark comedy. it does have sort of that magical realist almost fantasy to it, and it's also just like a compelling human drama about how this family's like built on lies, and uh one additional lie is too much, and the camel falls over.
0: That's right. There's so much shattered glass in this movie, and not without symbolic import.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And my my quibbles are are just that uh, nothing to to sink the movie. I, this was a fun one to watch.
0: Sweet. So before we get to our next full title, no, in 2000 she makes a movie called The Caveman's Valentine again, starring Samuel L. Jackson, um, which is a really interesting kind of daring movie about. Um, this unhoused schizophrenic man who was like a music prodigy um who then is trying to solve like a murder mystery um kind of based on his paranoid visions that ends up kind of being half true um this is the soloist
1: you're talking about (laughs)
0: <laughs> I know it sounds a lot like the soloist, um, but with but more uh, more mystery, more genre verve to it, and less like Robert Downey less Jr. being like, Robert Downey Jr. being a white, white savior. savior. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it is a very imperfect movie, but it, again, it's I like to see Sam Jackson working with her in ways that um, he is like never put to use at all in other movies um and it has some really she's a very empathetic filmmaker i think like whether you think like the whole mystery conspiracy of the story holds up at all she really lets the read the viewer understand how like for this guy the homelessness in and of itself is a way of like it's easy to understand the world in a conspiratorial way when it seems like the entire world has shut you out and is so impossibly weird in like the mannerisms it uses to shut you out. It's an interesting movie if people want to check it out. Great. You want to talk about Talk to Me?
1: No, Talk to Me? Question mark? 2007 the story of Washington, D.C. radio personality Ralph P.D. Green, an ex-con who became a popular talk show host and community activist in the 1960s. This is the Nighthawk Show, rocking your radio on the sounds of soul. a radio station in a time of change. He's always been a station of the people. We can't become the establishment or they'll turn on us. One man who had something to prove. You think you can turn us around? Yes, sir, I do. Found what he was looking for in the most unlikely place.
2: You see, I've always had a special gift. P.O.P. Pissed off people. Sometimes I feel like I should have a Ph.D. in (laughs) P.O.P. This is the cat that I've been writing you about. Your brother said y'all need a new DJ at that radio station. Hey, I'm your man. You're in prison. minor challenge will i help you tell your boss that pete green's on the scene <laughs> what is
1: going on out here you promised me a job as soon as i got out the joint oh my god he's a convict ex-convict wake up
2: damn it oh. pete green's on the scene no i'm a recovering alcoholic been sober five hours oh no some of my best friends is pimps whores Open this door.
0: You're I don't want to denigrate the biopic form too much, but I think I will go ahead and offer the form, the backhanded part of this compliment. I did not realize that this was a biopic for like the first hour I was watching it. Actually, until the DVD I was watching skipped and I took it out of the player to clean it. And then I was like, why don't I give this movie a quick Google? I was like, oh, okay. And I think there's a point in the movie where you can actually tell that it feels that it has to commit itself to more kind of historical details. But one of the things I love about this movie is that for the first hour, it is a pretty freewheeling comedy as Petey Green, um, is released. His ascension. Yeah. Yeah. Where he's released from jail, um, and kind of takes over the world of, uh, you know, morning zoo radio (laughs) in in the DMV.
1: Yes. Uh, Yes, I, I would argue that the, this movie, if, when we do get to it, its flaws are more in the construct of the genre uh, and less in like what's funny about this. Because like Don Cheadle is a very funny physical presence. I think he's proven that over and over again, uh, you know, canonically uh, in the Ocean's Eleven movies, uh, especially, where he goes the other way of having a British accent but being an American actor, uh, which I love. Uh, but this one too, like he has that kinetic energy from the jump of like literally being trapped in this space and then just being free and wearing these outrageous outfits. Um, you know, it's, it's the movie has a lot of things I like about it too. Cause you're also, you know, it's one of those movies that pokes at, or, or you know, posits to be like a corporate history of an entity that we only like kind of know about, which is talk radio. And so like, when you're when PD is sort of unleashed, it would almost remind me of like elf or something, which is like the mayhem that is incurred by this like outsider in this very rigid business structure. yeah. Uh, and yeah, and seeing that, and I think Martin Sheen as like the president is perfectly cast. Um, yeah, and then I think, and the the chemistry too, I think, between Sheetel and a is strong. You know, because you have this guy who, like, just wants to tie his tie tighter, if possible. Yeah. And then you have, like, you know, Petey Green coming in in these, like, incredible, like, extended lapeled suits and big collars. and Wearing a tie with no shirt. A tie with no shirt. That was great. Taraji P. Henson, uh, as his long-suffering girlfriend, is also just, that's like a miraculous performance, too. So much energy. She's, great. She's... Flying from room to room at some moments, uh, yeah. There's a lot of comedy, a lot of physical comedy here.
0: Totally. I mean, there and there's a. I think there's actually like some transcendent moments of, you know, it's it's all clearly leading to getting Petey on the air and how's this going to work and WL, WOL wants they want a a new voice and the friction is that like they want this like unhinged revolutionary, you know, say it like you mean it. Uh, talent, but they are not a say, it like you mean it's station. Um and right. so you have this very kind of like hyped up Sorkin-esque walk and talk on their way to finally put Petey on the air. And the one thing I've been thinking as somebody who did 10 years of radio was like, This guy is dropping F-bombs constantly. Is nobody worried that this guy is not gonna be able to, s- <laughs> to not swear on well, the air Well, that's what she and is he-
1: saying, like every other line is like watch your language.
0: In the walk and talk, finally, it pays off like a fucking slot machine, uh, where Sheen is just like, and watch your language, and watch your language. (laughs) (laughs) He says it so many times. And then, but the other thing that I love, and this is, I think, both to Lemons' credit and to Cheadle. I mean, Cheadle really understands performance and, um, you know, the ways in which people kind of get themselves up and create falseness for um, like when that camera is on. Like one of my favorite um, Don Cheadle stories that he likes to tell is he was cast as Sammy Davis Jr. in uh, like a TV movie about the Rat Pack. And he was telling the director like, these guys are like so racist to their friend Sammy and you don't have a single moment in this movie where like that registers with Sammy at all, like I'm gonna have to insist we add that moment, which is a story I always think about. like this is not a movie that's really overly concerned with the way that um, that uh, white like white power structures inflect or affect black uh, talent that much. Um, but he d- it, it does have a lot of those moments where you're like, oh yeah, Petey's just a guy, and like maybe he's not ready for this. And long before the movie puts its thumb on the Petey is not ready for this thing, you have him being really nervous on the way into the station. Yes. And the hilarity of him not being able to stop dry heaving <laughs> when he gets on the radio.
1: That is hilarious, yes. Uh, and I think too, like going back to the point about you know, sort of responsible myth-making uh, that Lemons has here. Like, showing those moments of, this is just a guy. Like, this is not, you know, the the characters that the culture is going to lose, like, over the course of this film. Of course, the climax being the assassination of Martin Luther King. But I think it's it's definitely on purpose that we see Petey as clearly a man like he has these special abilities, but he is still just a man uh, and seeing that moment to moment. And ultimately that being his, his downfall uh, you know, there's a certain narrative irony to that.
0: For sure. I think another scene that has to be shouted out cause it actually really like, I don't know how it hit you, but it played a trick on me, which is you're waiting for PD is We should say Petey meets Dewey, played by Shuatel 4 because Dewey is visiting his brother, Mike Epps, in the same prison. And Petey's like, you're going to give me a job when I get out of here, right? And Dewey's like, yeah, no, probably not. Whatever, look me up. And then Petey shows up at the station, starts protesting the station, you know, buss in. He's not getting this job. And then there's this scene where they meet at a pool hall. And they, you know, they put down some money and they essentially put down the job as a bet and I'm like, is this movie really going like, to lean this hard into the contrivance of a pool bet between two fairly disconnected characters to yes. get him this job? And it flips it 100% the other way, um, where basically Dewey has hustled Petey because um, he grew up oh, in this neighborhood yeah, yeah, yeah. at this pool bar. And he, the, the, it's not for – the job was never on the line of the pool game. But they just needed to understand each other further so that Dewey could kind of vet him as like, are you my guy? Which I think is just a great, it's a great like movie. I wish I, (laughs) it's obvious it's a movie scene, but it's like such a good
1: movie curveball. And if anything, I kind of wished that the movie had a bit more of that. Yes. I think it's kind of weird to have a movie that's clear comp is like a good night and good luck to really not have a bigger kind of political moment to it i mean it has of course the moment where green like calms down the like fiery temperature of the you know the politics in dc right after the assassination of mlk but like The movie never proved to me that, oh, this is obviously the beginning of talk radio. Like, look how popular it is for X, Y, and Z reasons. And Mm -hmm. all we really have to prove that is Petey saying over and over again that he speaks the truth. And then, of course, people repeating that he speaks the truth. And then, like, us hearing people talking about the fact that he speaks the truth. But other than really, like, making fun of some you know, some famous music executives at the time. Like, I guess I wanted him to have that, like him versus um, McCarthy kind of thing. Like, where is his actual narrative antagonist here other than his own like man versus self?
0: Yeah, I don't know. Um, I'm curious to know like just what else he, what else he said on the air. And maybe the movie just doesn't want to get Yeah, yeah. Maybe the movie just doesn't want to get into a failed, sobriety-shortened life story. Right. Which, you know, I can't really blame it for, but the the detour that it takes into being like in the last half hour of like, oh, we'll just show it all through Dewey, Um, and we're like... "Ah." Dewey wasn't the most interesting part of the story, especially not as a solo act. And I do think it's significant that he essentially like tries to steal Petey's shtick. But there's a moment where Taraji P. Henson is just like, he's not, he's not Richard Pryor, Dewey. He's not who you want him to be. He's just a guy who likes to run his mouth, and people really like to listen to that. And it feels like after that moment, the movie is kind of done with Petey, which is unfortunate i think
1: see i almost think the movie gives up on pd before that in the scene where dewey sits at the johnny carson desk and lets out those two really unconvincing like laughs like johnny carson laughs that moment i i I felt like i i lost my ability to suspend disbelief Hmm. in that like it's not about this guy. Like, I think a, a a movie that is truly about the downfall of this human focuses more on, you know, what his girlfriend wife is saying about him. The idea that, like, it is the going up this ladder so quickly that's killing him uh, and then speaking so much truth as to be so criticized by some system or like whatever it happens to be that is his, that's what I'm saying. He really lacks an antagonist other than himself, but that's like, where do you, where do you, you know, find a climax in a narrative like that? So they have to give it to Dewey. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Chance, can I be so forward as to say that this movie feels like a bad good? You may. I think Cheadle is hilarious enough and the physical comedy is hilarious enough that this movie, like if it were on, you know, it also has vibes of like that thing you do or walk the line or like whatever you know, sort of uh, celebrity rising adjacent story you want to come up with uh, set in the 1960s. Um, so it has that watchability to it. But yeah, ultimately, I think the ending of this movie, it just like doesn't ever kind of commit to what it is. Uh, and in that way, I think it's it's not a wholly satisfying experience.
0: I would agree it's not wholly satisfying. I, maybe my read is slightly different in that I think it, I think it commits to what it thinks it has to be, which is like this drawn out eulogy for Petey Green, which is from Dewey, which is just not not what I was enjoying about it. Again, a movie that was like essentially a very wise comedy, and I just don't know. I think it knew how to be a wise comedy for seventy minutes, and definitely not a hundred and ten.
1: Um, right. Yeah, it didn't have like that last sort of cruel joke to it, which it needed.
0: Yeah, or that last bit of, you know, take a note from Petey. Tell me something raw and unvarnished.
1: Yeah, what can you learn, audience member, from this man?
0: I think it ends up being like a movie that takes on Dewey's personality and Dewey's worldview, um, which is kind of sad and industry-invested, and odd because the movie was about Phoebe. Um, yeah. I think I'll come with you. I think bad good is the play. I think it's a, a movie I'm really glad we watched. I think it's a movie I will continue to think on very fondly, especially when yeah. I think about Casey Lemons and Don Cheadle.
1: Now we pivot to the part of the program where two white guys talk about a biopic of Harriet Tubman.
0: <laughs> Just for context sake in, uh, in 2013, she adapts, Casey Lemons adapts a, a Langston Hughes play called Black Nativity, um, which I'm interested in seeing. It's like a holiday musical that uh, just didn't fit into our February format here. And also Harriet is, we, we, we got to go here because it, it got serious awards attention and, and made $45 million in the U.S., which is no small thing for you know, a drama whose biggest star is Cynthia Erivo. Um, and maybe Janelle Monae um, But yeah, this uh, came out in 2019 I think Cynthia Reveal got a Best Actress nomination for it If memory serves uh, Noah, you want to synopsize Harriet?
1: The extraordinary tale Of Harriet Tubman's escape From slavery and transformation Into one of America's greatest heroes Whose courage, ingenuity And tenacity freed hundreds of slaves And changed the course of history
2: There's not much time You got to be miles away from here for dawn. Where is she? Follow that north star. If there are no stars, just follow the river. Listen for them. Fear is your enemy. Whoa, easy now.
1: I'm going to be free or die. I don't know if you know how extraordinary this is, but... You have made it 100 miles to freedom all by yourself. Would you like to pick a new name to mark your freedom? Parent Tumble.
0: Those qualities, to start with the positives, are best embodied through Cynthia Rivo's physical performance, which I think is yes. excellent. Um, in this movie, the uh, tenacity with which she runs through the woods—we've seen Cynthia Rivo run in the movie *Widows* in what is basically a special effect. How fucking cool of a runner she is! Um, She's a great runner, and it happens here again. Where I think, um, I feel like some people would be like, "Oh, such a Hollywood eyes." They basically turn Harriet Tubman into a superhero. I think that's frankly the most entertaining part of the movie—that she just has the hat and the pistol. And, you know, runs, I think, cumulatively thousands of miles over the it course It seems, yeah, it would seem to be the case.
1: Yeah. yeah, you want to see, like, what her, uh, her pedometer uh, says at the end of this thing.
0: Um, it's beautifully shot, too. Um, and the Terrence Blanchard score. Blanchard working together with the way that Lemons and John Toll photograph sunrises and sunsets and rivers. And it has that real hollywood like
1: cachet to it so this movie has two acts right there's the act where harriet tubman formerly known as minty is hanging out on the plantation they try to go through legal channels to like get her and her husband and her family freed her her white slave-owning family owner Uh, is a bit reluctant, to say the least, uh, to let go of these humans that he has, uh, you know, as slaves. And then I guess as, oh, the father dies. And then fucking Joe Alwyn, Taylor Swift's boyfriend's just like, hey, my dad died, maybe because of this moment you had screaming for the devil or God to kill him. Uh, So now I'm going to sell you further south where it's much less likely that you'll run from where we are in Maryland to Pennsylvania uh, to gain your freedom. Uh, So that sort of yields her initial crossing of this 100 miles uh, between a slave state and a free state uh, and then sort of realizing that that was easy enough. So let's go back and do it a number of more times, despite everyone around me saying, Harriet don't do that you're going to get caught.
0: Right. I'm not sure however that Harriet feels much like a human character, which is a problem not exclusive to the movie Harriet, uh, the movie Harriet, but um just a thing in very kind of high-toned biopics. Um For sure. Would you say that at the beginning she feels very uh, brave and self-possessed and then in the middle she's very brave and self-possessed and then at the end she's very brave and self-possessed?
1: Yes. Yeah, I think the movie does have that effort to humanize her with the whole idea of, oh, she's coming back for her husband specifically. And then he's like, you've been gone for a week, I'm remarried. Uh, Which was like such a weird... I guess the timing of this movie didn't... Always make a ton of sense to me, because it feels like she got to Philadelphia fairly quickly, and then she got back very quickly to Maryland, and then he seemed super surprised that she was there at all, but ultimately, other than that heartbreak that she goes through, which she recovers from fairly quickly uh there's not a lot like not that her and uh Leslie Odom Jr. need to have a romantic relationship that's like maybe a little easy here. But I guess I wanted them to have more of like a, you know, a combative friendship that's like, we should do it this way, buy the book. And she's like, nah, we got to go in there and get them all, you know, that could yield more, you know, like the Evan Rachel Wood, Jim Sturgis kind of back and forth and across the universe.
0: Mike, what an odd, incongruous reference. Well, I think <laughs> it wants a little bit of that with uh, Janelle Monet as uh, Marie Buchanan, too, who owns this boarding house in Philadelphia, and I think our guest Christina was like, I think that's the movie that or that's the relationship that they're kind of trying to hang the movie on in very Casey Lemons fashion. But I just feel like a lot of the script efforts, Gregory Allen Howard wrote the script, um, who he did the script for Ali and Remember the Titans. Um this is like familiar sort of uh American history territory and, and civil rights territory for him um as a writer But I just feel like a lot of the efforts toward humanizing characters are quote-unquote humanizing them. They don't feel real. They're often given like one stereotype-busting thing that ends up in like very discourse kind of dialogue. Like the movie seems weirdly concerned with like um, free person privilege in a way that I found sort of surprising, which is not like uninteresting, but it's just sort of being like... No, It's sort of used as like, no one gets to judge Harriet, especially free black people in in the North. Um, and like, yeah, just like a lot of the efforts that are made to complicate people feel like, well, there, I complicated them one time. Um, you know, the yeah. the... yeah, it doesn't, it does not feel organic.
1: Well, I, and there's, there's like an internal conflict of tones in this movie too, because on one hand, you have like this very sort of... I mean the the character of Harriet is she's she's again sort of magical uh, the way the women are in Eve's Bayou like she has these similar visions that allow her to like see danger coming and like as you said earlier chance she almost becomes a superhero but on the other hand you have a very cynical political drama unfolding too where it's you're like watching white people be like Wait a minute. All of our slaves are leaving. We're the victims here. Like right. there's something like so irreverent and like so like biting about that. Like that's the movie that I wanted to see is sort of like using the I mean and she does at certain points but like I almost feel like using that That like outrageous sort of uh, parody white hubris uh, to her advantage like is more interesting than like her having a vision and like them having to pause in the woods so they can make a left and not run into the group of horses that's like in front of the bridge about to wipe them out. Yeah,
0: let me address both points. Yeah, there is a scene that I I think is almost, like, unintentionally comedic, or maybe it is intentional, where Jennifer Nettles, as, like, the matriarch of this slave-owning family, who's just, like, you know, blitzed out of her mind on vermouth, like, rallies like, all of these other, like, white racists who were like, you you need to pay us restitution because Harriet Tubman helped all our slaves run away. And she's just like, I am the real victim here. We are all victims of this woman! And all of the guys are like, wait, she's right! <laughs> and it's like, is this, are we sure this is what we need to spend our time on? But it is a way of showing a kind of white fragility, I think. Right.
1: No, and I think it's finding white fragility both like terrifying, but also kind of funny.
0: Right. I think the other possibility is that this is not so covertly like a faith movie. And this is, it's sort of odd for me to want this as a person who's never had any faith of any kind, but I think it would be weirdly subversive if Harriet, Harriet, Instead of just being like, you doubt me, what about all the actions? Might the unimpeachable right. movies worth of actions I've done? What about like, you doubt me, you doubt God? Um, because these premonitions that she's having come from this is a true to life thing. Harriet Tubman sustained like a very traumatic brain injury that caused her to have visions and spells, which she felt were uh, premonitory at some points. Um, is that historically accurate? It is. Okay. But I don't think it, I don't think it was like,
1: go right now. (laughs) (laughs) Right. No, I think you're totally right. Like if this movie, like this movie just like won't commit to being like a weird uh, Ten Commandments, which it really should be. Just do it, man.
0: Yeah. Like
1: have her cross that river and like have the waters part. Like don't just have her wade through it. You know, I think committing to that, you know, the myth making of it makes more sense or commit to like the hyper realistic, you know, oh, this is, you know, but then give us a sense of like the time of this thing.
0: I didn't buy it too. People who are that uh, faithful tend to talk about and conceptualize their faithfulness in ways that, yeah, that... Uh, often get pushed out of more secular Hollywood fare, and it just feels like that is an integral part of her character. That actually might make this, even if it seems religious or conservative somehow by modern standards, like put it in there because otherwise you just have a, a woman who's ugh, infallible, just yes. completely infallible.
1: <laughs> right, just the the hand of God, um, right. without mentioning God. Right. Which, so what? Yeah, it's it's very interesting yeah commit more to that like that is I maybe that was the concern that it would alienate a secular viewership or something like that but i think you have to run that risk in order to make her seem more than like uh here's why she should be on the 20 dollar bill haven't you seen the film
0: this movie is just a little constricted or a lot constricted by being an oscar Beatty biopic and um where does that come through the loudest? Like when P when Leslie Odom jr is like, maybe you're right. It's 1858, but it does feel like soon we might have to have a civil war. It's like, okay, <laughs> come on. <Yeah>. Well, I <laughs> thought on.
1: it was lazy when at, at any point in a movie set in historical time, when a character looks at another character and goes, these are dangerous times. Like yeah. it loses me. Cause like okay. nobody, nobody says that. I mean, are, are, are are these dangerous times? Possibly. Finally. Currently, these feel like dangerous times. Incredibly nobody, dangerous times. I think. You know, the but like when I move it that way, is, is if the Civil War is some sort of Easter egg to this movie, uh, <laughs> was pretty silly. And then, of course, the scene where they're running to the boat and they're like, "Did you hear about the Fugitive of slave law being passed?" Like that felt like, like James Spader running around in Lincoln yeah
0: for sure um so yeah i think the rating for this one is honestly very easy it is quintessential good bad it lands right in that kind of invictus or theory of everything biopic that's not to say
1: that there's a sport portrayed that you need to know the rules for that you don't i just want that to be clear
0: Right. I know that that's our Invictus reference. We typically use Invictus to talk about not knowing the rules of rugby. Today, I'm using it to talk about a fairly uh, contrived and, some, and somewhat effective hagiography.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think it's a pretty quintessential good, bad. Uh, has all the trappings of good, bad. Has like singing at unnecessary times. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it doesn't have. It has a central character that is in every frame, but we know very little about. Um, you know, it has that that, that massive score. Uh,
0: Blanchard's flop. going for it, as he always does.
1: Oh. You love to see it, you know, but you I think in this it. one... And you love to hear it, but I think <laughs> in this one, it kind of does a lot of the emotional lifting, like especially in the scene where she's like, my name now is... Harriet Tubman
0: <laughs> right I asked this of Christina and I I, I kind of wish I, I would have followed up more but she was like I want to see more relationship based movies from Casey Lemons whether like romantic or about friendship and um I I know Casey Lemons herself is a, a self-professed lover of of melodramas. Um, it could be in a rom com. It could be a buddy comedy, uh, which is like the first hour of Talk to Me. But I, I'm with Christina. I would like to see more of that too. And what I would really love to see her get back to, um, and I want the industry to embrace this is, is I don't know, being able to make more like creative back fiction material. Just in case I have
1: to run.
0: Happy birthday to Casey Lemons. Uh, I no, I, I appreciate that we've we've still been able to to keep going on the show, spotlighting black directors from time to time. Uh, I've been thinking about Bill Duke. I've been thinking about uh, Gina Prince Bythewood. Um, there's uh, there's some careers out there that uh, I'd love to get into in 2021. But um, thank you, man.
1: I'm always down for it, man. Like to watch cool. movies, like to talk about them. <laughs> Happy to continue doing both. You said it.